Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show, offering unique insights and in-depth analysis, featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Matz. Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs with a brisk 30 minutes on the latest in South African and global news. We are live and then up as a podcast. We'll bring you insightful interviews with key business and political figures, prominent newsmakers and leading experts, all packed into a concise, informative update. It's Friday, the 26th of January. Coming up, a decision on South Africa's genocide case against Israel. Are you spending too much on your home loan? There's pioneering new research undertaken in the fight against HIV. A new plan by the Twani Metro to deal with derelict buildings and behind South Africa's growing shortage of accountants. The South African Medical Research Council is now leading a new scientific research team on the African continent in a race to find a vaccine for HIV-AIDS. From the council, I'm in conversation now with Professor Glenda Gray. And first of all, Professor, how is this research taking a different direction? So the approach that we're taking is that we're trying to induce broadly neutralizing antibodies to protect against HIV acquisition. So we have proof-of-concept information that body neutralizing antibodies protect against HIV acquisition using monoclonal antibodies. And so we know from all the HIV vaccine trials that we've done that there are certain correlates of protection that are coming up in each of these trials. And those correlates of protection are focused on specific epitopes of the envelope of the HIV vaccines. Professor, in the short term, can you then elaborate for me on the primary objectives and your early expected outcomes? Okay, so our primary objectives is twofold. One is to choose a vaccine platform that can help us to rapidly iterate. And so one of the vaccine platforms we've chosen is the mRNA vaccine platform because it helps us to iterate. So we'll choose these immunogens that we think are going to be immunogenic. And we'll put them in an mRNA platform and we'll rapidly evaluate them in preclinical models in rats, rabbits, and non-human primates. Mm. And if we get a hit, we will prioritize those for further clinical development and eventual clinical trials. So we're looking at the mRNA platform as one of our primary ways to iterate rapidly. And then obviously, we will also look at backup vaccine platforms like nanoparticles and proteins to in case the mRNA platform doesn't do what we want it to do. So we're using the current, you know, so it's a good time to start this this kind of research in 2024 because we know that the mRNA vaccine platform is is a very good place to rapidly iterate. You can make mRNA very quickly. You can look at these candidates in the preclinical model. If they don't look good, you can just abolish that pathway. So you can rapidly do this and and, and not waste time. But at the same time, you know, it may be that the mRNA platform, although we can rapidly iterate, it might not be the best platform to advance into human clinical trials. And maybe we find that a, 
another vaccine platform like a nanoparticle or a protein actually gives us better immune responses, then we can take the immunogens we've selected from the mRNA platform and put them into another platform and advance those because they, they give us much more durable or more potent immune responses. So obviously we're going to finesse the, the platform, which is very important. And then obviously we need to select those immunogens that we think will induce the immune response we're looking for and see whether our hypotheses are correct. So there'll be a lot of vaccine discovery. We're looking at breakthrough infections. So across the continent who had breakthrough infections, we can take their virus and sequence it and have a look at the evolution of certain sites or structures in the HIV to see how fast the virus is evolving and to make sure that we're responding to the most currently circulating mm. virus strain on our continent. How big an issue is a lack of scientific capacity and research infrastructure in Africa? You have alluded to that. It's a big problem. So if you look at the whole of the continent of Africa and just taking any scientist, not just a medical scientist, there are 198 per 100,000 population in the whole continent. And if you look at this, if you compare this to the UK, we have about 442 per 100,000 on just on that small little island that we know as, as Britain. And so you can see that um, one of the things that we need to do in Africa is invest in science. And we need to have local investments you know, because it has to be sustainable. We need good infrastructure, we need career paths for scientists, and we need to encourage them to stay. Around 20,000 professionals leave poor countries to go to better pastures. So if we can create a science economy, an ecosystem in Africa, we can keep people who are talented on our continent and they can also help move many issues forward. You know, we need a TB vaccine. We need an HIV vaccine. We need better vaccines for malaria and lesser fever and Ebola. Mm. So we should try and invest as much as possible. We should be investing 2% of our GDP into science, each country. We're way below that in South Africa. And you can imagine other parts of Africa, they're even less. And we know that investing in science is important because we can look at places like South Korea, like Singapore, China, India, who've invested in science and look how well they've done. I'm going to leave it there, Professor Glenda Gray. Thank you. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. The Tswane Metro has approved a strategic plan to fight hijacked and illegally occupied buildings, in essence taking them over and going then to the private sector. More now on this issue from the MMC for Corporate and Shared Services, Kingsley Wakelin. And firstly, how many buildings are there? Jeremy, to be quite frank with you, uh, we have got a very good view on our own current properties that we own. We don't necessarily have a a broader view on private properties that's owned either by uh, other organs of state or uh, private owners. And it's for that reason that we have decided to put together an integrated team to first and foremost start with a complete assessment and audit on the complete inner city to have an understanding. But in our own situation, we've got about approximately five, six buildings that we're busy monitoring at the moment. And why is it important for you to develop the strategy? Just from a broader term, uh, globally, uh, people are flocking to big cities and metros, uh, obviously for economic reasons. And uh, Tswane is the hub for any northern countries, and we've got a lot of undocumented foreigners coming through. We have got a lot of people flocking to the city of Tswane. 
Yeah, so in general, I think it's not just a Tawny problem. I think it is a big metro problem throughout the world, and we need to be prepared. And we've obviously picked up on the matter that's happened in Johannesburg and a number of other places, and we realized that we need to put together a much broader strategy because what is happening, we picked up on also the silo effect within departments, and we need to look at the integrated approach to ensure that we have everybody on board. Broadly, are you able to tell me the condition of these buildings? Well, I can certainly tell you they are completely dilapidated. A lot of them have got illegal connections. A lot of them have got no proper sewer systems or water reticulation systems. So the buildings in general are in very bad condition. They obviously are, some of them are hijacked. They're asking, uh, particularly people that want to have accommodation, asking extremely high prices and obviously extort them. And this is the area that we need to focus on. Uh, We, as a city are not in a very bad state as far as the number of volume of buildings as far as we know so far, but we want to make sure that we have some preventative and proactive approach. Do you have a sense of how many occupants there are in total? That is the problem. We don't know. And uh, we can tell you they do multiple rooms within a like a flat. You'll find that they use very cheap material to cordon off, and that's part of the building, building regulations that are contravened. So I can tell you they obviously put as much as they can put in. We don't have the numbers. And that's part of the reason why we're doing what we're doing. But could run into hundreds? Oh, in actual fact, I think it could be mm. thousands. And particularly if you look at uh, high-rise buildings uh, over 10, 15 stories high. And so it could be in thousands, yeah. And your plan would involve eviction, no doubt? Yeah. So we're looking at eviction processes through courts, obviously, um, taking back these buildings, um, convert them back into proper social housing, possibly, or work with NGOs, working with uh, government, working with private investors, and those that are interested in, uh, and obviously there's a very specific focus in this area for us because we've got quite a large number of universities to provide proper accommodation for students as well. But you would conceivably have thousands of people on the streets. Part of the agreement or part of obviously the PI Act would let us look at alternative emergency accommodation, which then will be formed part of this strategic plan that, strategic plan that we want to put in and uh, provide this alternative accommodation because our previous court outcomes have shown that we need to obviously look at that portion of the complete value chain. Where is that emergency accommodation? That's part of the plans that this team has to put together. We're looking possibly at each region. Uh, in, we've got seven regions in the city to possibly put forward a typical emergency accommodation that, which will include complete toilets and water and sanitation to be available for these people. But conceivably outside city limits and people often go to a city in order to find work. Yeah, but unfortunately our position is clear that we cannot allow continuous illegal occupation of buildings. It will just break down the complete trust that the people have got in the city and our local government and we need to show some cause in this. And that's why, obviously, we got very strict bylaws and law that we need to enforce. I understand that you've got to enforce the bylaws, but would you give a guarantee that any evictions will be done sensitively and with empathy? Because this isn't always yes, the case. Yes, of course. We are watched, and, and we have learned through our previous lessons that we obviously got the human rights uh, lawyers. And so, yeah, we, we were sure that we'll stay within the law and in the confines of human dignity and be sensitive because we understand where these people are coming from. But we need to apply, because our bigger problem we have at the moment as well is that these slum lords and these syndicates are having a, a roaring business. And that is part of an issue that we want to deal with. It. Because part of that, additional to that issue, is that you'll have the drug problems that we have and prostitution and everything that goes with this type of buildings. So it's not just about accommodation. It is a broader 
lawlessness that we want to capture and fix. This is a final question to you. There is a partnership that you're proposing with the private sector. How are you going to ensure that this process is corruption-free? So we have got a clear process that is tried by law. We want to put out everything on open tender. We want to make sure that we have got the best people to do the job, people that are committed to a long-term plan of the city. Uh, you can be very certain uh, we also have just recently uh, in the process of finalizing uh, part of our SAP for uh, SAP system, uh, a supply chain process, which is called Ariba, which will be hands-off. It's a complete technological system, uh, which will then allow them for a proper process to be followed and tracked and audited. And obviously, you always have the human element, but uh, we are trying to obviously eliminate that. But I can be, you can be certain that's something that we will keep our hook eyes on. Kingsley Wakeland, thank you very much indeed. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. The number of chartered accountant candidates in South Africa is decreasing, we understand, while others who've qualified are choosing to pursue opportunities abroad. So I guess the question is, how worrying is this? What's the impact and can the trend be reversed? I'm going to talk now to Faith Nguenya, Managing Executive for the Centre for Future Excellence. Faith, uh, thank you very much for joining us. What are the primary reasons behind this then? Uh, Good afternoon, Jeremy. Um, it actually is the unattractiveness of the profession in the country. Uh, the young uh, professionals are finding that um, the profession uh, is more lucrative if they go to countries uh, like New Zealand, Ireland, UK, and so on, because they one uh, they are getting a better life balance, life work balance and uh, also the packages that they are getting in those countries far exceeds what they are getting in in South Africa. That's mainly what we see as um, what is attracting uh, professionals to, uh, especially within the accountancy field, to be going abroad. So if this trend continues, what do you think the impact will be? The brain drain that we are experiencing obviously results in um, South Africa having a shortage in accountancy, which is already uh, the case. Uh, If we look at the external auditors, uh, they are one of the critical skills that are on the Department of Home Affairs list of critical skills. Um, The tax professionals are also a scarce skill. So the more we're getting uh, young qualifying uh, accountants uh, moving abroad, that gap is just going to increase further. So as the profession, we need to be looking at how can we make this profession to be uh, sexy, if I can make use that term, and also make it attractive to especially our Gen Zs that are looking for uh, highly stimulating uh, uh, work environments and uh, roles that are actually going to be challenging them whilst they have to be flexible to still pursue other things that they are interested Mm. in in life, then obviously the older generation, we were happy with just being in a job where you will be working diligently uh, time and time again. But we have got the youngsters now that are looking at something more than just uh, a career. So we need to be able to balance that uh, in South Africa if we are to retain uh, the talent from 
are growing out of our shores. Do you think the accounting profession is waking up too late to this problem? We, we as the profession, we have seen uh, this happening. And uh, yes, I think we were reactive rather than being proactive in ensuring that uh, we embrace this change. And what the worst has actually seen a long time ago, that this is what will make a future professional accountant. Uh, we are actually waking up fairly late to it because um, our digitalization programs, uh, they are only taking up speed now. Uh, we are waking up now to see that a lot of digitized programs are really replacing what we have traditionally, even from a university uh, perspective, what we were concentrating in uh, teaching our, our graduates. That's what's not required in an accountant of today. So we are slowly realizing this and working through our competency frameworks. Uh, Cyper, for example, we have revamped our competency framework uh, so that we are including a lot of what will make a professional to be, I mean, an accounting professional to be a wholly mm. rounded person than we did before. So, um, Mm-hmm. No, I was going to say, I'm just looking at some of these statistics here, a 24% decline in candidates writing the the test of competence, and perhaps more disturbing, 20,000 skilled accounting professionals needed in South Africa, and I imagine that that figure would grow every year. Are the big firms themselves uh, alive to this, and are they moving with enough speed, do you think? They are moving uh, uh, with speed. Is it enough? Obviously, we wouldn't be seeing so many youngsters that are going, or young professionals that are going uh, abroad if we were doing enough um, at, the, at, at the time when it is required. So we, we still need to pump up our speed and ensure that we are able to attract this talent uh, amongst us as a country to obviously be able to uh, to keep the the increasing numbers of uh, accountants being uh, in the sh- in the shortage. Mm. Uh, yeah. Faith and Gwenya, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Managing executive for the Centre of Future Excellence. Top stories to keep your eyes and ears on. This Friday, the International Court of Justice handing down its ruling on South Africa's genocide case against Israel. A conversation now with Professor Kathy Powell, an expert in public law at the University of Cape Town. Just to tell you, we recorded this conversation a few hours before the ruling, so the focus is on significance and process. And firstly then, how difficult a case was it for the court and what factors would they have weighed up? There are a couple of sticking points in the judgment, but very few. I don't think there is any question that the court has jurisdiction. In that respect, the strongest argument that Israel brought was that there wasn't really a dispute because there hadn't been one-on-one contact interaction between Israel and South Africa on the topic. Um, But actually, the ICJ's previous case law uh, has been satisfied with statements made and counter statements at the UN. And South Africa and Israel did more than that. So we've definitely got a dispute. There are definitely parties to the Genocide Convention. The Genocide Convention gives the ICJ jurisdiction. So that's easy. Then we've 
got a plausible case for genocide. Israel produced a number of defenses to the evidence, both physical and um, the genocidal statements that Israel had done. So the devastation of Gaza, the the level of destruction, the level of suffering of civilians, the deaths of civilians, and the various genocidal statements that had accompanied that. And Israel's defense was largely, well, it's self-defense, and the level of destruction is necessary because it's Hamas's fault, because of how it's embedded itself. Now, those are defenses that still need to be tested, but they don't render the charge of genocide implausible. Remember, or at this point, all we need is a plausible allegation of genocide. And I think what's going to be decisive there is the weight that the court attaches to the genocidal statements, which were very strong. So that was the weakest part of Israel's case was, was when it tried to, in effect, do a Trump and dismiss all those terrible statements as war rhetoric, a kind of, that's just locker room talk. It's actually far more serious than that. So I think when you've got those statements plus the, the carnage, You've got a plausible case of genocide. Now, the problem will come in the provisional measures that South Africa has asked for. And I think Israel's strongest argument was against calling for an order of a ceasefire. And this is because um, nobody has denied that we have an armed conflict in Gaza, that there are two sides. And as Israel pointed out, only one of the sides is before the court. Israel's before the court. Hamas cannot be, it's not a state party, and therefore a, a ruling by the court to stop Israel from continuing its military onslaught would mean that one side of, of the conflict can no longer fight, but the other side can. I think that was quite a strong argument, and I think that's what makes it likely mm. that the court will trim down the provisional measures uh, quite strongly. Israelis also objected to some of the other provisional measures for being broader than the case that had actually been argued. So some of the provisional measures would affect how Israel acts in the West Bank. In itself, that's, you know, shouldn't be a problem, but South Africa had not brought any arguments about what was happening in the West Bank, didn't have the, the facts, the figures, the statements that would attach to the West Bank as opposed to Gaza. So I think because one of the requirements of uh, provisional measures is that they've got to relate to the subject matter of the case, one could possibly argue in this case that those provisional measures are inappropriate, that they go too far. So what I'm looking for today is the, what provisional measures the court grants, but I'm pretty confident that they will grant provisional measures. And if those provisional measures then are granted, what sort of message does it send out? Well, it sends out a message that it has found a plausible case for genocide. And uh, that is likely, and here I'm reading tea leaves, but it, that finding is likely to rest on the genocidal statements quite strongly. And then as perhaps as a, a sideline, the level of destruction in Gaza, perhaps on an argument that IHL, international humanitarian law, could not possibly condone this, something like that. But you see, those facts haven't been tested yet. The, the statement that, you know, there's... In effect, there's a Hamas militant in every room. Those sorts of things have to be tested. But I think the most significant moral step is going to be the finding by the court that it looks like Israel might be committing genocide. With the pressure that that will put on Israel and its allies, all of whom are parties to the Genocide Convention, 
is significant. And sometimes people get cynical when international lawyers say, well, you know, this brings more pressure, it's going to have an effect. But just think of what a difference it made when South Africa just brought the case, Mm. that that immediately led to better behavior by Israel in Gaza and more humanitarian trucks were let in and there was simply a a better treatment of the civilians of Gaza after this case was brought. So I think if the court finds it looks like Israel might be committing genocide, Israel has a much bigger case to prove than it did before and its allies are going to pressurize it. And indeed, it gives its allies more leverage to pressure Israel to actually try to reach some sort of solution, try to reach some sort of agreement with Hamas, which it has just in the past declared it's going to obliterate entirely. Depending on any decision made on provisional measures that uh, the court is deliberating on, would Israel have a right of appeal? No. That's the thing with the ICJ. It's the highest court. There is no appeal from it. The only follow-up could be if something about the judgment is unclear or the facts change and one of the sides requests an amendment or a clarification of the judgment or just an interpretation of it in effect. But you can't go and appeal. That's it. However, remember, this is just the provisional measures stage. The main case is still to be held. The provisional measures are an interim order to stop things from getting Mm. worse while the ICJ decides whether Israel is, in fact, violating its obligations under the Genocide Convention. That is the point at which France and Germany, I know, are stepping in to support Israel. So the court might nonetheless go on to decide there's no genocide. So if you want to think of follow-up, there is going to be follow-up in that there is going to be a very rigorous investigation of the claim of genocide. But there can be no appeal against the provisional measures granted. I'm going to leave it there, Cathy Powell. Thank you very much indeed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. And our final port of call this Friday, and let's bring it uh, closer to home. Uh, Here's a question. Are South Africans overspending on their home loans? Natasha Champion of Uber Home Loans and her company says many South Africans are feeling financially stressed following a few tough economic years. Well, of that there is no doubt, but how does this play out in the housing market? Natasha, a very warm welcome to you. Why have you raised this issue? Thanks for having me, Jeremy. So I think of how South Africans are spending money and how they're prioritizing their net surplus income. And I think when we're looking at cutting corners and and budgeting, we need to focus more on frivolous spending and and not be afraid to to invest in in a non-movable asset. So what strategy specifically then, uh, taking into account the the frivolous spending quotient, would you suggest for managing, managing affordability? You know, I think by education, we first need to understand what we can afford, how we can qualify, what our credit score looks like, and then translate that to to a long-term saving strategy, a long-term investment strategy, and and actually getting something, you know, bricks and mortar, safe as houses, uh, a generational wealth creating asset on the books instead of maybe a fancy pair of sneakers or or a hot set of wheels. That's, of course, if you are bullish about the property market in South Africa, given all the uncertainty that exists right now. I mean, I think the silver lining around that is that that income has actually increased um, more so um, over the last uh, medium medium term than price has. So affordability is actually at, at higher level. Home forecast uh, and property investment we see as a long term investment. 
is positive. You also have some interesting observations on an increase in home loan deposit sizes among home buyers. Where does that sit right now? You know, it's interesting. People become slightly more disciplined and, and realize that the higher the deposit, the lower the repayments and certainly the more attractive um, the home loan uh, approval will be in terms of the the interest rates, etc. So we're seeing an upward trend in the size of home loan deposits, both in the second and first time buyer space. So so people are putting more more money, more of their own money towards those transactions to obviously provide um, a, a more um, attractive deal. Mm. And average percentage of income allocated is around 20, 21%, I'm correct. Yes, so it's, it's a 20%, which is well under the, the of, you know, the historical shouldn't, shouldn't exceed 30%, your home loan repayment of your gross. And South Africans are still sitting in the, in the 20% space. It is slightly up from, from 2021 in a higher interest rates environment, but it's still low, which echoes uh, responsible lending. And, and and responsible spending. And I am going to leave it there. Natasha, thank you very much indeed. Natasha Champion from uh, Uber Home Loans. Before we go, we asked on our daily poll yesterday, how can companies guard against misrepresentation of qualifications? Uh, three options, strengthening vetting, enhancing governance, better promoting ethical standards. A clear majority on all of our platforms calling for stronger vetting. The question, of course, is will it happen? On today's poll, the ICJ decided whether South Africa's accusation of genocide against Israel is plausible. And our question today is, do you think that South Africa did eventually prove its case? Uh, The options we're giving you, the case was well argued. South Africa failed to convince the ICJ. More countries are going to join South Africa's case. If you have a view on that, I would invite you to go to uh, MoneyWeb, either on Twitter X or on our LinkedIn page. I will have the results for you on our show on Monday. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live uh, live at noon weekdays. We're up then as a podcast. Have a good weekend. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.